This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. So I just want to jump into a brand new series. Um, we are excited about this series. Um, I've actually been thinking through this concept for about six months, uh, six months now, and it has been literally something that I've just been kind of brewing over and brewing in for the last little while, uh, specifically because during our holidays, we spent a lot of time at the beach. We were in water. Um, we were always around water, and if we weren't around water, we were at a splash pad where there was water. You know what I'm saying? And so water is significant, but in, this, in the Bible, there's multiple Jesus encounters, life-transforming encounters that literally happen either in the water or at the water. And so what Pastor Ray and I are going to be doing over the next three Sundays is going to be presenting a message to you about Jesus' encounters while at the water. And I want to, I want to say this morning, you may have come this morning and you've, you don't even understand what the word God encounter means. You don't even understand the word encounter means. But I want you to just make up your mind this morning to have one very basic thought. To pray one very basic prayer. Jesus, reveal yourself to me. That's it. Can you do that for me? That's all I'm asking for. Nothing else. I think that's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. In the Bible, water is significant. We understand uh, in Matthew chapter 3 where it talks about water baptism that an act of obedience in our faith in Christ is actually played out through this, this moment in our lives called water baptism. For those that have never been water baptized, we're having another one in January. So keep that in the back of your mind. But water baptism was proven through obedience. Uh, Jesus' first miracle, of all things, was turning water into wine in John chapter 2. Um, John chapter 4, which Ryan actually prayed out in the, in the morning pre-service prayer. I love how God does that. Um, there's this woman who was at a well, and Jesus met her. She was a Samaritan woman. And once you understand the context, you understand that, number one, Jesus was not supposed to associate in any way with that woman because she was a Samaritan, but he did anyway. And she looked at him, and, and she cried out in John chapter 4, verse 14, and basically says, you know, I, I, I need water. And he looked at her, and he says, I have water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. And he obviously wasn't talking about physical water, he was talking about himself. That if you take me, you'll never thirst again. Ephesians chapter 5, it's a beautiful book in the Bible. And this chapter is kind of, kind of compartmentalized into some different areas, but in Ephesians chapter 5, starting at around verse 22, it starts to paint the picture of what a marriage looks like, of what a home looks like, and, and it describes all these beautiful pictures, but then it gets to verse 26, and it literally says that the Word of God is like water washing, cleansing, refining you, making you into the very thing that God wants you to be. And so water, in the imagery of water, is significant. Um, it cleanses. It refreshes, and we know naturally it's the source of life. If you don't drink water for three days, you're going to have problems, right? And we know that. We know that medically, but there's a spiritual connection that I want you to see this morning that water is significant. So I want to share with you this morning a story. Um, it's the story of the very first disciples. It's the story of the calling of the first disciples, and 
for those that uh, maybe know your Bible, it was actually four that he called at the very beginning. It was Peter and his brother Andrew and then James and John. It was the four of them. But I'm going to read to you this morning the passage from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. And it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, uh, uh, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Verse 21. Here's the next two set of brothers. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, just before we jump into this story, I don't know about you, but on first read, if you don't understand the context of Scripture, how many have ever read something in the Bible, never understood the context, and went, what in the world is this about? Makes no sense. How do I understand that, number one, from a 2018 lens? And how do I understand that enough to apply it to my life? It's a constant thought, I believe, for most people that read the Bible. But I don't know about you, but if I read this for the first time and I, didn't think th- I, I wasn't thinking context at all, the first thought that would hit me would be, my goodness, these guys are crazy. They just had a stranger called them, and they just got up and walked away. They left everything. It makes no sense. They left their job, which to me is irresponsible. I don't know about you. Uh, they left their boat, which to me was completely irrational, considering that's where they invested their money. Oh, okay, that doesn't make any sense. And then they, they left their family. Their father in particular, and one version says they're hired servants too. So obviously the job was going well. When you've got a bunch of hired servants, the job's going well. Doesn't make any sense. One moment he's irresponsible, one moment he's irrational, and the last moment he's insensitive. Hey, see you, Dad. Where are you going? Don't know. <laughs> that guy looks really cool, so I'm going to follow him. Says so he's got great Birkenstocks. I heard they're the rage, so I'm going to go follow that guy. No, that wasn't it at all. And when you actually read the other two events that are recorded in the other Gospels, the same event told by Luke in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and the same event in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, you start to find out a couple of key pieces of information that give context to the entire story. And then I'm just going to walk this thing out, if that's all right with you. So the first thing is this. The four men that Jesus was calling were actually followers of John the Baptist. They'd already made a connection to John the Baptist. One of those versions say it. The second thing is this. We know that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. I don't know about you. Family's important to a Jewish community. I'm sure they knew who Jesus was. The other thing is this, is there's one version in Luke chapter 5 where it actually talks about Jesus speaking and teaching as he went. So I'm absolutely convinced scripturally that they had heard about his teaching before they saw him on the beach that day. So he was not an unknown. He wasn't somebody they didn't know of. They wasn't somebody they didn't know the background of. They knew the connections. They knew the family connections. And they knew what his ministry was because they had heard about it. Okay? But what was interesting is from these crowds of people, including John the Baptist's followers, it's where he chose his disciples. He chose the committed from the crowd. Those that followed him. I want you to understand today 
one basic thought. Are you ready for this? This is the only thing I want you to remember for the rest of your life from this message. Are you ready for this? Number one, the call of Jesus is life-defining. When Jesus calls you, it redefines your life. You can't get away from it. Matthew verses 4, verse 19, it says again, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You have to understand the language, and we're actually doing this with our interns right now. Um, we're, the first week, we ended up teaching them a lot about some of the Greek and the Hebrew and some of the ways to interpret Scripture and how to understand context, how to understand the geographical gap or the historical gap or the uh, interpretational gap. And we understand all of those gaps in order to help understand what the Bible is actually saying. But this word come, um, this word follow in the Greek literally means come now. It wasn't Jesus saying, hey, you want to hang out sometime? Hey, you want to go, uh, go have coffee at Starbucks? It wasn't that at all. How many remember the movie Up? Squirrel! That's what it was. It was a squirrel moment for those four men. Doing their thing, mending their nets, getting ready for the day. I'm going to go catch a bunch of fish so we can sell it at the market so we can continue to hire more servants. Working for my father. Everything's going well. Squirrel! What did you say? Come follow me. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Woo! You know, and there he goes. Sometimes we look at that and we go, what in the world is going on? What's the significance of this thought? Jesus wasn't asking them in this moment. He was persuading them. He was persuading them. Why? Because he knew that their life could be redefined from that moment on if they simply said yes. And his heart and his prayer that morning was, I hope they feel about this moment right now the way I do. Because this moment could transform their life. One version of this verse actually says, I will make you to become fishers of men. And when you actually look up the Greek word for make you or to make, it literally means to make ready, to fashion, or to form. Jesus comes and says, I want to make you ready for the purposes of God by fashioning and forming your life so that it looks like me. So that you can live like Jesus and love like Jesus. There's my little vision throw in there. That's the call of God. He wants to not just have you respond with a yes, but He wants you to say yes to being formed and fashioned after Him. Amen. He just sees this as a giant opportunity for you to climb up on His potter's wheel. You say, well, I don't like when people, you know, put a little pressure. Jesus is so smooth and so good. You know what I've realized in my life? I have this pattern when I was growing up where I knew what the answer was, but I kept feeling like if I kept going around the mountain and I came back to the starting point, that somehow it would have changed. And I was convinced if I just keep ignoring Jesus, maybe He'll ignore me. 
It doesn't work. Take it from someone who tried. It was miserable. Miserable. It doesn't work. Jesus wants you to say yes, not only to come follow me, but to jump up on that potter's wheel and say, Lord, form me, fashion me, mold me, use me, do whatever you want to do in me because I know that my life will never be the same again. It is a life-defining moment for those four men. And he's saying to you this morning, let it be a life-defining moment for your life right now. Don't wait for an hour from now. Don't wait for next week. Don't wait for a year from now. Don't let someone else steal your moment. Don't let someone else distract you from what God wants to do in your life this morning. He loves you. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. Oh, it's awesome. I want to share this morning, because every once in a while I like to do this, because it's, it kind of just brings out some of the, the background and the history on what is actually happening in this story. I love history. I loved history when I was in school. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I majored in it in university. I love it. So I'm going to share with you this morning some of the revolutionary ways that this whole story becomes huge based upon the rabbinical uh, traditions and the priestly traditions of a rabbi in Jewish days. For us, we understand that education is something that we get to do. Some of us wish we didn't get to do it. But education is given to us and provided for us so that we can learn things, so that we can eventually uh, be prepared for a career, get a career, have, you know, white picket fence, and we move on with life. But in Jewish tradition, it was never meant to be about information transfer. It wasn't just about, I'm sharing with you some information that you don't know. I hope you get it, and I hope that blesses you. In Jewish tradition, education was the school called life. It was everything. Um, we had one of, the most I mean, one of the most powerful families that we know. Um, the, the man, the, hu the husband, the father of six kids is a Messianic Jew. I have never in my life seen a husband and a father make every last ounce and aspect of their life about Jesus. And I'm not talking weird. Every moment was an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Every moment was an opportunity to, to pray or to talk about what God wants to do in our lives. Every moment was about the plans and purposes of God for your life. We were there, thankfully, when I first met Sandra, we ended up doing a cross-country trip in Sweden. We went to the west coast of Sweden, and we met, I met this family. Sandra knew them for years. I met this family. I got to the end of the first day, and I just went, Wow. I remember us talking. I said, honey, that's what I want. I want that kind of family. That's ridiculous. Because everything about the center of their existence was Jesus. <laughs> but I want to talk to you just briefly about some of the traditions and how children were raised in this school of education, the school of life that, that, that the Jews would consider to be normal and expected for their people. There was, uh, and I'm going to have just the names of the different places on the screen behind you for you to take notes and write down. But the pattern according to, according to Jewish tradition is that a child at the age of six would enter a place called Bet Sefer, which meant house of the book. And the entire process of this, of this particular place was that between the age of six and the age of ten, they were tasked with the concept and the idea and the pressure to memorize the first five books of the Bible verbatim. The Torah, 
That's where the rabbinical uh, teachers were always focused on the Torah. That's what they debated. That's where their oral traditions came from. It was about getting the Torah into their children. So from the age of 6 to the age of 10, in this particular school, the Bet Sefer, the house of the book, the goal was to help their children memorize the Torah. And I just want to give context. I so wish that the Torah was like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, where it was like two, ver two chapters or three chapters. I don't know if you've opened your Bible lately to the first five books of the Bible, but like that takes up like that almost that much of your Bible. It's huge. There's like 50 chapters, and they're long, and they're big. And by the age of 10, they knew it inside out and backwards. That's crazy. Do you understand the level of, of, of not just challenge, but the level of expectation that was put upon those children to know that? That was huge, Okay. They knew the entire Torah by heart by age 10. They also, by the age 10, were supposed to figure out their future. So either they were going to go, at the age of 10, they were either going to go into the family business and do what dad was doing, or they were going to go to the second um, school, which we're going to call the Bet Talmud, which is the house of learning, which would happen for only specialized students that had come out of the first house and they were the superstar students of the first house. They were the ones that were just keeners, if you know what I'm saying. And the Bet Talmud was a place that was spe specific for these, these high-functioning students and these high-learning students. And just when they thought it was easy to learn just five books, now they were required to learn the other 34. So between the age of 10 and 14, they were now required to know the whole Old Testament verbatim. 39 books... That's a lot of words. If you're doing a word count, that's a lot of words that you have to know at that particular moment, okay? They would also study the art of questioning and the art of oral tradition. In other words, they would learn how to debate Scripture in order to learn and understand what God was doing. Remember the story where their parents lost Jesus and they didn't know where he was. He was 12 years of age. He was in this school. And he was debating the priests and the leaders and the Pharisees in the, the, the outer courts about the ways of God. Why? Because this was part of the school training. The Bet Talmud was to train them how to argue and defend their faith. That's what happened. Okay? This is what Jesus was doing in the house of learning. The third level is for kids that are aged 14 or 15. So at the end of that second house, they either make up their mind that they're now going to go get married and go become a part of the family business, and that's where most of the people, like 98% of the people, would have done those first two things, and they would have moved on, gotten married, they would have gone and got a job with their family business, and everything would have moved on, but they would have had this great foundation of faith, this great foundation of doctrine and theology, which they can now pass on to their children, which was the role and responsibility of any good Jewish family, right? That's the heart cry of them. But this third school is what we call the house of study. Another version says it's the house of disciples. The house of study or the house of disciples. It was around the age of 14 or 15 um, as only a very small, select, prolific, and passionate group of people got to this third house. And here's what would happen. At the end of their second house, their second school, they would have to apply to a particular rabbi in order to be considered, uh, um, considered as one of those rabbi's disciples. So the 
the disciple or the student had to apply to get the job of being a disciple of that rabbi. This is key. You have to understand this. This is crazy. So we often think of a disciple as a student, but the goal wasn't just to know what the rabbi knew. The goal for a Jewish disciple or student was to be like the rabbi. So that whenever you saw that student, you'd think, well, I know where he came from. That is so-and-so's student. That's so-and-so's disciple because he thinks, acts, speaks, talks just like him. Okay? So I want you to understand that when a student applied or a disciple applied to a rabbi, he was desiring to take that rabbi's ministry and teaching gift and yoke, the Bible describes, upon him. Why, why is a yoke important? Because a yoke was always meant for two oxen. It was never meant for one. And you'd always put one strong oxen with one weaker oxen in order for that strong oxen to carry the load and teach them how to walk, how to plow, how to keep going, how to not give up. So what he desired was the yoke of that rabbi. That's what he desired. That was where his heart was. He wanted to learn the rabbi's way of life. That was his heart. So when the student came and formally presented their case or their desire to be that particular rabbi's disciple, the rabbi had to decide in that moment if they think that this person could cut it. How many have ever been in maybe through a job situation and there was a promotion and, and someone looked at you and said, no, we gave it to this other person because we didn't think you could cut it. So the rabbi would go through a vetting system and how to vent all the people that applied to his discipleship program to see who would make it and who wouldn't. Okay? This is what was going on. And the rabbi, at one moment, when he decided which group of disciples he was going to call, guess what he did? He would walk up to them and say, come, follow me. Now we come back to the story. Jesus walking on the side of the beach. Jesus knew the temple rules and the laws. He knew the pharisaical laws. He knew the rabbinical process. But he did one thing different. He did one thing very different. And just before I explain to you what that is, there's a cool little thought that I found this past week that I didn't know about, but is in Jew Jewish traditions. And they said, most rabbis didn't start their teaching ministry until the age of 30. Wow. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? That's when Jesus started his ministry. He's 30. And when introduced to the first disciples, Luke chapter 5, it records this little conversation that goes on between the four men who saw Jesus and Jesus himself. And it says, Rabbi, teacher, what are you doing and what are you teaching and where can we follow you? But by the end of that little story, they look at him and they don't say rabbi anymore. They say Messiah. The anointed one. The one from the Father sent to redefine my life. You know what's so cool about that story? At the end of John chapter 1, 35 to 42, and and it references a little bit of Luke 5 as well. Jesus turns around and looks at one of them, Peter, and says, Simon, I'm not going to call you Simon, which means read, any longer. I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. 
A simple yes to a simple command changed his whole identity in a second. A simple moment where they no longer just saw him as rabbi, but as Messiah changed their whole life. It redefined their whole life. Come back to the story, Matthew chapter 4. Who did Jesus choose? Fishermen. Not the top of the list as far as the people that he should have chose. He chose fishermen. The master rabbi chose fishermen. (laughs) I want you to know this morning, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter what you did last night, no matter the decisions and choices of your life up to this moment, Jesus wants to let you know, I have vetted you. I've deliberated about you. I have processed through this thing. And I choose you. I choose you. There was one major difference between the Jewish tradition and Jesus' new model. In the Jewish tradition, the disciple had to apply to the rabbi to be their student. Jesus chose them. He's choosing you today. So you don't understand, man. I, I'm not really worthy of being chosen. Join the club. I would have been the last choice that I would have ever chosen to be here. I would have been the last choice that anyone would have chosen to be a pastor of a brand new church. But here I am. Not because I got the goods, but because Jesus one day looked at me, walked by and said, come, follow me. And I went, squirrel! And I've been saying squirrel every day since. I get up in the morning. Instead of God, what do I want to do today? He says, what do you, what, what, what can you make yourself available to, Cameron? And I go, squirrel! Because I want Jesus' plan. I want his way because he has wrecked my life. Amen? Jesus chose you. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you, would, uh, that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. It's his initiative. It's his choice. It's not your choice, because some of you this morning would choose to run away in the opposite direction, and as soon as you turn around, he's there. He chose you. He took that incredible, beautiful, Jewish, rabbinical tradition and he flipped it around and said, yeah, I know that's what I'm supposed to do. I know that's what you're supposed to do. But I choose you. And that's what he's been doing for the last 
thousands of years. He chooses you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.